Hi, welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, with our weekly wrap-up of uh, the news in the nation, and it's called Just Ask the Press. With me, as usual, is former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin, uh, and also with me is editor at large from CQ Row called John Bennett. We've got a lot to unwrap this week. Uh, Donald Trump was found to be a fraud in court in a summary judgment. Meanwhile, Donald Trump has called for death threats for a couple of former members of government. There's an outlying media poll that says Donald Trump is ahead by 10 points over uh, Joe Biden. Dianne Feinstein has uh, checked out for the last time. And of course, we have impeachment hearings on the Hill. Why not? All of this and a lot more when we come back, so stick around. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth with Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, with our weekly Sunday wrap-up called Just Ask the Press. Guys, we're going to start out this week. <laughs> Where do we start? There's so much to unravel. But let's start with, with the summary judgment in court. Uh, Donald Trump, in a, uh, was, there was a summary judgment issued, uh, I guess it was Friday and Monday. Uh, he will, uh, actually, the hearing will start as to how much he'll have to pay. But Michael, if you can kind of unpack that for us, what actually did happen? Donald Trump is now in civil court anyway, been called a fraud. Yes. So Letitia James, the attorney general of New York, sued Donald Trump and his sons for fraud. And the Trump organization responded and we were getting ready for a trial, which actually will now take place this coming Monday, tomorrow, was Sunday, rather. Yep. On Monday. And before the trial was to begin, each party moved for summary judgment. Summary judgment is a a rule in the federal rules of civil procedure, similar in the state, that says that a party may move for essentially a judgment in the case before the jury trial gets to it, if it can show that there is no genuine dispute of any material fact and they are entitled to judgment as a matter of law. So basically what they're saying is, look, judge, if you take all of the facts of this case in the light most favorable to the defendant, Trump, and you apply that those facts to the law, we win. 
And so why make us go through a trial? Because we win because the facts at, in relation to the law give us an entitlement to a, a verdict. And the judge looked at all of this, said, you know what, you're right. And this is how the judge ruled. And so now the Trump organization has been found guilty, essentially. The judge has preempted the jury determination of guilt because he said there is no fact in dispute here. And therefore, Letitia James is allowed to have a judgment as a matter of law. So she has this judgment now, which says that Trump is has committed fraud. And the judge said, now we'll deal with damages. And there are a few other parts of the case that hasn't been resolved this way, and we'll try them. So essentially what the judge found was that in Trump's annual financial statements, he engaged in rampant fraudulent activity. And therefore the judge said, not only are you entitled to a judgment for this, you also can start dissolving his corporations. It's an interesting aspect of this statute that this is the extraordinary relief that it, it grants. And er Erdogan and Garan, the judge, took the unusual step of canceling certificates that allow Trump to operate in New York. So here we have the beginning of the dissolution of, of the Trump world, the Trump Tower and all these other properties in New York, a judgment that he has engaged in uh, certain fraudulent valuations of his property and that we will now just set whatever different damages the judge um, believes should um, be presented before the jury. So it's a pretty amazing decision, whether now, it's- Can he appeal that? Not immediately, he, he tried to, and the Court of Appeal said, you know, go forward, have your trial, and then we'll we'll deal with it a afterwards. It's, so he know, can't appeal the summary judgment. They're gonna go straight into how much he's gotta pay. Yeah, they're gonna go right into trial on, on, on Monday, two days from today. But it's interesting, because this state law that um, was passed in 1956 that gives the attorney general these exhaustive uh, powers is a, an unu unusual statute because they don't have to prove in this statute that the defendant, Trump, intended to defraud anybody or that anybody was actually uh, hurt financially, su suffered a loss. As long as they engage in this pattern of um, repeated fraudulent valuations under this statute, that's enough to hold them liable. So what that means is this case is going to be appealed uh, and and the, the constitutionality or the legality of this statute, I'm sure, is going to be tested. But that's way down the line. What's going to happen in the coming weeks is that there's going to be a judgment on some of the other aspects of this case and the jury will have to make a decision about whether Trump is liable for them. And uh, also then we'll have a hearing on and determination about what additional sanctions, fines and other monetary penalties that the Trumps will pay. So it's a, a, a all-inclusive rebuke of Donald Trump and, and his organization. And they've called them, uh, you know, essentially like they called um, Trump University and like they called the Trump Foundation before this, frauds. They, they, they said this organization is is engaged in rampant, fraudulent activity. Well, John, let me tell you what Donald Trump tweeted out right after 
This he goes after four sham arrests, indictments, and even a mugshot. They failed to destroy my family business. Now Democrats are seeking to bring down the world famous Trump Tower and impose the corporate death penalty on me. The trial could begin as early as Monday. Help me, I'm here to help you. <laughs> Send me forty-seven bucks. Surprised? <laughs> uh, a little surprised that um, that it could all, you know, be taken away, so to speak. Um, uh, this seems pretty pretty complicated stuff, which you I think you would expect um, in in a guy with you know these properties and this many businesses and uh, such a shall we say uh, sorted past business wise and now politically. Uh, you know, I, I'm not surprised that he inflated uh, the value of um, you know his properties and his businesses and. Uh, Trump Tower and and everything else, because you know uh, the other night he's he's speaking Wednesday night instead of at the second GOP primary debate at a an auto parts factory in Michigan, and you know he's complaining a little bit in his own way. He's complaining about uh, the venue; it's too small. There aren't enough people, uh, you know, in front of the stage where he's standing at the lectern, um, and he says there, are, you know. Tens of thousands of people outside. Well, there weren't, um, <laughs> and and so he inflates everything. I mean, you know, you and I were at the inauguration in 20, uh, 20, early twenty seventeen. Yeah. There, you know, he says it's the biggest crowd ever. I, you know, we were also uh, at one of the Obama inaugurals, and you could look out <laughs> from the Capitol, and and you could see people from you know all the way. You could just see people. No, at, at Trump's inauguration, of course, you could see the white tarp that the Park Service put down on the mall. Right. You know, you couldn't see the tarp uh, the, that last Obama inauguration or the first one, especially. Anyway, so I'm not surprised that um, that the allegation is there that he inflated these values. Um, interesting defense uh, from what I've read about this, at least what their um, his defense lawyers are putting out there, that. You know, none of the banks, they say none of the banks that uh, Mr. Trump and his business organization got loans for over the years uh, pushed back or or were complaining about the values to which they loaned uh, sums of money. So what's the big deal here? You know, and Trump says, well, the banks made money off that and I made money. So we made money. And who cares if it's illegal? We made money. And that is that is vintage Trump. You know, the rules. OK, the rules are there. But, you know, to him, the biggest thing are how he's perceived his image and uh, did we make any money? And, oh, you made money. What are you complaining about? I mean, can't you hear him saying that yeah. uh, to his lawyers or, you know, to to these followers, these loyalists that um, that 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 fed him over dinner and lunch at Bedminster? Mr. Trump, it, was, it was a Ponzi scheme, Mr. Trump. Who cares? We all made right. money. It's all right. good. Yeah, right. Well, you know, and and again, you know, they seem to be saying that the that the laws are uh, somehow, I guess, unfair or too strict. But again, the bottom line, from what I've read about the early defense, or at least the public uh, messaging from his attorneys, is, eh, everybody made money, so what? Yeah, that's going to be an interesting uh, thing to take into court. I don't know. Well, no, but but let me say this is. This is what's unusual about this 1956 New York statute, which it doesn't require proof that anyone was harmed financially. Right. Yeah. Typically in a fraud case, just as the word implies, 
someone was defrauded, and that means you know something was taken from them, something of value was taken from them, sort of unwittingly, um, you know, with them, with them not you know wittingly participating in it. If you give me a hundred dollars today, I will come back tomorrow and pave your driveway. Okay, that's great. Here's a hundred dollars, an advance fee. The guy never comes back. That's that's garden variety fraud, advance fee right. fraud, or bank. I'm going to tell you that I'm worth this. You lend me money, and I will pay back the money. That value was wrong. They have no means to pay back the money, and the bank loses. Here, Trump said to the banks, "Here are my financial statements. They have big block letters on them." Don't rely on these because they haven't been you know, certified by an accounting firm. They're just sort of like my view of the values of my property. And the bank said, fine, fair enough. They, they lent him the money. Mm-hmm. They didn't suffer a loss uh, financially. <clears throat> um, and Trump therefore says, yes, maybe I inflated these values, but because nobody lost any money, how can you call that fraud? because nobody essentially was injured. <clears throat> New York has said that's not the way you analyze this. If you engage in fraudulent activity, it is per se a crime. You can't say, well, essentially my, my fraud wasn't successful or mm-hmm. surprisingly, nobody ended up losing money. Um, but because- you still defrauded <clears throat> people. Right, and there are tax consequences to it as well. The state says you deflated, lowered the value of property in respect of the taxes you owed on that property, and therefore the, the taxpayers of the state of New York were defrauded. were defrauded because we didn't get the taxes that we were entitled uh, to get. So there are there are harms that Trump is ignoring in the Letitia James allegations, but it is an unusual statute because normally you prove the intent to defraud um, as an aspect of the of the case, but here they really didn't have to do that. They have to say, was it, you know, sort of essentially fraudulent per se? That is, <clears throat> when I stated something to be a value that I knew not to be true, I engaged in a fraudulent representation and that's all that's required, irrespective of whether anyone suffered, you know, financial loss individually from it. So we'll see how this statute gets analyzed over time. But for where we sit now on um, the weekend before the 1st of October, Trump has been found to be, by a trial judge, a fraudster who now is going to suffer penalties at trial and has already begun to lose the, the business certifications of his property. A receiver has been appointed to sort of over see this again it analogizes to the foundation where they said this is not a uh, the trump foundation is a fraud it's not engaged in um non um, taxable for you know behavior it is engaged in fraudulent behavior it is not a uh, 501c3 sort of tax exempt organization it is a fraud and they appointed a receiver and they wound it down that's what the judges ordered here too these properties will be sold or some such thing. And Trump will no longer, if things stand the way they stand now, at the very end of the day, he will not own 
Trump property in New York. Some of the other uh, properties in New York. Does it affect Mar-a-Lago? I don't think. Right. No, it doesn't affect. That's the question yeah. is, can they yank outside of the state? And according to the, they're, they're not. They're only going to take away his ability to do business in New York and, and cease his New York properties. Yeah. Which as is, we speak. Which is, a big, which is a big deal, obviously. Yeah, that's, yeah. Trump Tower is a homeless shelter. I think that would be great. Um, we've got to take a short break. <laughs> we, 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 the good conversation, but I got a break. So let's take a short break and we'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask a Question. This is my question, right? And, and John, you bring up the freaking, you, you touch it. They have folded every time. When McCarthy said, hey, you know what? Go. Out, call for my ouster. Did they do that it? That was no. three times. Yeah, That's the they third haven't time. done it. They right. So- why is there any reticence? I This is the thing that is con- confusing to me. Why is there a reticence to step up and nail them to the wall? Because they've already shown they're going to fold. What do they have? Are, are there cards that they don't have that they aren't playing? And at the same time, I know that the Democrats have been upset, right? Because there was one of the reasons that you have why they wouldn't get involved to help him in the beginning is because he called for this inquiry into biden as to whether or not there would be a you know an impeachment all Mm -hmm. right so now that it's been called they've had the first one it was mccarthy said let the facts fall where they may maybe he was playing the long game and go look make an ass of yourself you got nothing so now you can go back to the democrats and go look you may have been pissed because i did it but look that was a that that was a great victory for you now will you help me out i mean i don't know what we're seeing of what we're seeing on the outside and what machinations are going on on the inside to get us right. to a point where they won't shut down. That's so, uh, but to your point, I, I, I mean, you, you made it crystal clear. They have backed down every single time. Why not press the issue now? So there isn't a shutdown. If they do that, I will be impressed. That's, but John, go ahead. Oh, Michael, go ahead. Hands up. I was going to say, what may be underneath the Democrats' thinking is if you were to ask Newt Gingrich, I think, and others, they will tell you that government shutdowns have not helped Republicans in the past, that they tend to be held responsible, and people don't like it when the parks are closed or they can't get their Social Security or Medicare or other um, entitlement programs and military families, you know, fear not being paid and traffic controllers have to come to work um, regardless of the shutdown. People don't like this stuff. They may rail about the government, broadly speaking, but if you got to go to a veterans hospital and you can't get in or some such thing, people get upset about that. And Republicans are the ones who have been responsible for and blamed by um, the American public for 
these shutdowns. So maybe the Republic, maybe the Democrats are sitting there thinking, fine, you know, we've got an election coming up. It's going to be a close election. We've got a lot of swing districts um, that we may be able to take over. And if we can mm-hmm. get one more, you know, sort of nail in the coffin of the Republican self-imposed party, nail, <laughs> then then, you know, who, who why would we want to help them help themselves? And, you know, we'll just sit back and watch. And if they are the ones who are blamed for it, then right. we, we suffer no, no, you know, sort of blowback um, for it. And maybe we get an advantage if we compromise with them then everyone is, you know, credited and that doesn't help us because you see a lot of articles that say so you're saying they're Republicans in, swing, Republicans in swing districts are anxious about this shutdown and how it will oh, yeah. impact them. All those who are criticizing um, the hardliners and the Republicans, you know, people, uh, the, some of the Republicans in New York that surprisingly won last time around that gave the Republicans the majority of the House. They're all saying, whoa, I'm not so sure that this is a really good idea for me individually. So, so all right, we're going to, I've got it. We got to move on, but I'm going to have, I got one, have, can, I, can I just no, jump no, in one last, last word on it, but okay. I'll just say before that, what you're also saying, Michael, is that the Democrats may be putting party ahead of country. Let's just, I'll let that one lie, but go ahead, John. We got never, that, that would never happen. Brian, that would never happen. <laughs> never. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Okay. One one card that we have not seen from the conservative rebels is who they would run as speaker because McCarthy oh, McCarthy would be on the ballot again. He would be nominated on the House floor by his allies. So who do the conservatives have that could get to right now? The number I believe is two hundred seventeen. Usually it's two eighteen, but we had a resignation. So two seventeen. Who can get there? For no them, one. they haven't said who they would run. And as as CQ Roll Call's uh, political editor, longtime reporter before that, Herb Jackson put it to me yesterday: "You can't beat somebody with nobody." So they haven't done this because, in part, you have to assume because they don't have anybody that could get to two seventeen. And and if the Democrats decide, and Jim Clyburn on on CNN on Friday said he could see a world in which the Democrats maybe voted present on the motion to vacate and it would fail to help keep McCarthy in the speakership because the devil you know is better right. than the devil you don't. And and if you eventually get a really conservative speaker, well, Republicans don't want, want that either. Uh, I'm sorry, Democrats don't want that either. So um, that could be part of this behind the scenes is McCarthy and company know that there's no one uh, that the conservatives have. Now, Tom Emmer was floated in a story. He's the Republican whip. He was floated in a story that posted late one night this week at the Washington Post as as a, as the conservatives' preference if we get there. Um, but I didn't see that reporting really anywhere else uh, the next day. So it doesn't look like they have anybody is the bottom line. And, yeah, and if No you, kidding. That's right. So... <laughs> You know, so I, I'm not sure I'm not sure what they gain by vacating the chair other than humiliating McCarthy. But don't rule that out, that, 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 well, that that's a big motivation. That's their hubris. Yeah. All yeah. right. So we've, we've torn that one apart before. I'm going to take another <laughs> short break. We're going to come back and we've got a lot more to unpack and a little time to do it. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, you. 
Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, with our weekly roundup in the news, Just Ask the Press. We haven't gotten past Trump as a fraud and a rapist in civil court and the government shutdown, but the government shutdown is very interesting, and the whole idea, well, is quite frightening to many. But nonetheless, there is a lot else that's going on this week. Let's start with the impeachment hearings. Um, one of the deals that we talked about and the, uh, that uh, the Democrats may not be so happy about was the fact that Kevin McCarthy, in, in appealing to his uh, far-sighted friends, had allowed well, impeachment hearings to begin this week, or in, an inquiry into an impeachment hearing. And it was uh, many folk who, including Jamie Raskin, who laughed about the evidence, there being no evidence, as he sat watching uh, Comer, James Comer from the People's Republic, uh, from the Bluegrass State of Kentucky, tell us why uh, we're not going to see anything real uh, life-threatening or new in these hearings. John, were you surprised? I wasn't surprised. Uh, I talked a, a lot in the last segment, so I'll keep this pretty short. I didn't watch much of the hearing. I did hear uh, Chairman Comer in his opening statement um, reveal the damning evidence of we are not going to plow any new ground today. And I had other things to do. I had uh, two products to deliver that day and some edits. And I X'd out of the tab where the hearing was playing. And um, I didn't hear anything or read anything that made me regret that decision. Michael, do you think that there will be anything come from these hearings at all? Well, there'll be a lot of political um, machinations about it, but whether or not um, there will be evidence that establishes that Joe Biden engaged in high crimes or misdemeanors or treason, um, unlikely at, at this stage. I have to say a couple of things. First is that the witnesses that were called were not fact witnesses. They were about, is this inquiry the type of inquiry that is you know, acceptable? And the Democrats smartly said to each of them, do you presently have any evidence or know of any evidence that would amount to a high crime or misdemeanor? And they all said, we do not. And so the headline out of the first day's hearing is Republican witnesses say no evidence presently exists that would um, amount to an impeachable offense against Biden. That's not really a good headline um, for those <laughs> promoting it. But there's, you know, there's we'll get to that issue if we have time. <laughs> there's stuff out there that relates to Hunter Biden and the manner in which he engaged in, in business dealings with you know, possibility of uh, shell companies and other, you know, sort of money laundering like um, fund movements uh, for payment that are probably worthy of inquiry. But I haven't seen anything in the record that links any of what Hunter Biden was doing financially 
to President Biden or Vice President Biden or even private citizen, private citizen by Biden. Biden, which of course you can't impeach somebody for the activities that they engage in as a private citizen. They could be indicted for it, but I think that statute of limitations has, has long ago um, ran out. So what we had in day one was uh, uh, you know, a flop from a, a new evidence, evidence that links the president or when he was vice president to impeachable conduct. And I don't know that we, we will ever get there. And I think therefore that these impeachment hearings are bound to go nowhere. And if the press continues to be so disinterested in them that John Bennett has decided to do something other than watch it on TV, <laughs> I think it's, a, it's, a, it's going to be, you know, sort of a, a pretty substantial bust um, for the Republicans. And they've got enough busts think, on their hands without-, without I, To me, without it's, it's the- it, it, to me, it's the theater of it. You're going to have these hearings, right? And John, I mean, if you're a Democrat, if you're a voter, you're having these hearings and you admit that there, or you say up top, and it is bad headline, say at the top, there's no evidence as of yet. And at the same time, you're closing down, threatening to close down the government. I don't know if the juxtaposition of those two images plays well for Republicans. I just can't imagine that it does. But with that said, I do want to change gears one last time uh, and and uh, and talk about something that really is, is at the touchstone of all of this. And Michael, you 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 talked about bad headlines. We talked about coverage earlier, John. Um, the other day, the president of the United States was invited to walk on a picket line with UAW workers and did so. Made history. The next day, Donald Trump showed up at a non-union shop complaining about the size of the crowd and saying there were tens of thousands outside, and we knew that that was a lie. But also, we saw a reporter from CNN, and it wasn't just CNN, it was others, who said that you know Donald Trump is now a, uh, a worker-friendly. He's for the workers. He may not be for unions, but he's for workers. And there's been no indication of that at all. And then you have uh, commentators uh, like a friend of mine, uh, I, you know, Wodge, I think, who said that we're not doing ourselves any favors if we don't introduce Donald Trump as, you know, uh, a rapist and, and a fraud every time we introduce him, that we give him too much equivalency and that we are helping to make Donald Trump by not putting facts out, but by just giving opinions. John, as a reporter, you think we've had our hands in, in creating the mythos of Donald Trump? We certainly played a role, um, you know, in 2015 and 2016. I think especially cable news, um, you know, he he moved the needle ratings wise. They thought he was a novelty act that would fade and a fad maybe. And voters um, would eventually, um, and, and, and there's no other way to put it, come to their senses and, and uh, move on to other Republican candidates back then, uh, you had, you know, Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and some governors. So you had alternatives. And I think the media thought, well, um, this is good television and people are clicking on it and tuning in and, and sticking around when they do, which is important as well. Um, and then, you know, 
he became the nominee and then the president. Um, it is it is tough. It, I admit it, it. It's tough um, to to cover this and explain exactly what we're seeing. We've never really figured that out. The collective we, the royal we, if you will. And, you know, he is all those things in the eyes of the court system and his accusers. And um, and now uh, a judge in New York who says basically his business successes were, were driven by fraud and 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 flim flam tactics um now how do you get all that into your nut graph of a story um that's something that has confounded us Given too much ink he's up by 40 points in the primary i i don't know <laughs> how to define too much ink he's <laughs> You know, um, there's an interest, right? We we there's an, if there were there's no an interest, interest, we wouldn't do it. That's correct. We're responding to market forces, and that's clicks and page views and ratings and open rates on newsletters and and ad buys and all that. Um, and we're you know we are a business now. We're not just a, for the public good. So that all uh, that factors in. But you know if. If you're trying to break through to another segment of the voters, and you mention all of that, the uh, everything that you laid out succinctly, um, then oh, you're just part of the liberal deep state media who's hell bent on 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 taking down Trump, Michael. When you're, just, when you're just reporting facts, so it's very difficult for us, and it's only going to get more difficult. Yeah, yeah, Michael. Well, we sure give a lot of attention to Trump. I have to say. Uh, as I, as we speak, as you two know, um, in the ICU unit um, with my cancer-stricken mom, and I've been pretty much off the grid um, these past two weeks since we've got the diagnosis, and I haven't been paying close attention to a lot of things, and I keep turning down requests to be on TV to talk about legal issues, and it's so refreshing. I mean, not not that my mom is dying of cancer, but that I am not having to listen to the daily grind of Trump, Trump, Trump. Um, and it seems to me there's a lesson there, which is that in some sense, we are all living in a PTSD sort of place um, because of this outlandish uh, behavior and covering of, of the the Trump machinations, and maybe we would do ourselves as a country a lot of good if there was a little less of it and a little bit more of a return to talking about the things that matter in in, in people's, that should matter in, in people's lives. So yeah, I think that we hurt ourselves as a, as a country and we hurt ourselves sort of as, as, as individuals, psychologically as individuals, to have this constant, you know, traumatic discussion about Donald Trump. That's uh, yeah. first of all, and and, and now you've sh well, I mean, not shaming me, but God bless you I, for doing what you're doing with your mom because I've gone through it with my pop and it's not easy. And so, uh, just you know, me to you, love you, and if there's anything I can do, you know, I do it. Um, and and I think John, we you know. If, if, if there's wet work to be done, you just call us, we're in. So let's, but that aside, look, what you say about that is so true on so many levels. I mean, 
but John, you said it, we make decisions in our business every day based on money, audience share. It's not journalism. And the the big problem that we have, I think, in our business is that, you know, Trump went on Meet the Press because he's good for ratings. It's he's still we we do respond to the market. And unfortunately, as long as we are responding to the market, not to, you know, Ben Bagdickian said, you know, ultimately you're responsible not to the owners, not to me, not to yourself, you're responsible to the audience. But we don't take that very seriously because it's you can't count that. It to us, it's not the coin of the realm. And but I I I say that really we should, you know, there I think there are millions of people that would tune into the facts if we consistently delivered them. And it's not always about Trump. And it's but making better decisions about what it is to be covered from an editorial stance and not from a monetary stance that I think honestly would enhance the bottom line because facts are the true coin of our realm uh ratings i think can be had and and readership can be had if we do it the way we're supposed to there's my preach i i you know i'm just preaching for a a market of solid reporting because i believe that the marketing people could actually sell that but that's, that's just me john yeah, the, the business has changed. You know, you've you've been doing this longer than me, but but I've watched it change. I've felt it change. I've lived yeah, it change. Too, yeah. And you're absolutely right that um those things now uh you know drive the drive the train in large part, you know, there's still a lot of good traditional uh, work, journalism work going on. Um, but you know, that good solid work in the business models that a lot of folks, a lot of outlets are working under, um, that doesn't pay the bills. Uh, you got to do other things. And, and, and that leaves, I think that leaves us open to a lot of criticism. I will say to Michael's point about coverage of Trump and, and maybe it's too much and it's too constant. Uh, you know, we talked here about the constant part of it is by design. That's Trump still driving narratives and news cycles, but this week, we, we saw it again, the traumatic part. And I'm glad that Michael used that word. Um, twice this week, uh, Trump referred to death and, and senior officials. One was yes. um, now, now former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, who retired yesterday and uh, an always cool ceremony here in the Washington area. Um, but, but Trump's, you know, Trump criticizing Milley for reportedly back when Trump was still president, um, Milley talking to his Chinese counterpart, which is a very good thing, by the way, that that back channel exists, not even a back channel, it's a hotline. And it's good that it exists. Um, they need to, those two militaries need to be talking to each other. And, you know, they, they interpreted some, the Chinese government interpreted something that Trump said back then very literally. Uh, Milley had a regular scheduled call with his Chinese counterpart. It, that, what Trump had said came up and Milley, just tried to pour some cold water on it and said, no, no, no. You know, he, he deals in hyperbole. He didn't, he's not doing that. We're not planning for that. That's not going to happen. All right. Hold on, then hold on. I, I want to, I'm sorry. I don't mean, but to be specific and, and I'll let you go on. Millie did by talking to the counterpart in China, merely reiterated American policy Correct. as it has been since the end of world war two saying specifically, we will not attack you first. We're not planning to invade you. And that's what 
got Trump mad. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Thank you. I had forgotten the details on that. Yeah. So thank you for adding that. Yeah. And uh, and and Trump uh, this week wrote on his social media platform, which I will not name, that um, back in the you know back in the olden times when Americans were tough and didn't take no shit, that would have been considered treason uh, because he was somehow speaking against the president, and Milley would have been uh, executed for that treason. Milley admitted in a television interview, a kind of a farewell interview, that he has and will be taking with him as he transitions into civilian life, uh, security, added security. Uh, this is a big, tough guy, career army. You know, he's a ground pounder. Like Those guys, you know, and, and so now Milley, to protect himself and his family, will be, um, I don't know, maybe perhaps even paying out of pocket for this for this security detail as he, as he becomes a civilian. And secondly, um, he Trump was ranting and raving about government spending and all sorts of stuff in some social media posts and went back to Mitch McConnell about the looming shutdown and and you know the fact that McConnell wants to cut a deal a bipartisan deal to avoid a shutdown um said that McConnell has a death wish and you know these implications he doesn't come out and say it but all it takes is one or two people to take that very seriously and get get lucky and 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 try to do harm to someone that Trump writes about on on his social media platform. And after January sixth and other things that have been uh, thwarted by law enforcement, you have to take this very seriously. And clearly, Milley does. And I've seen McConnell at the Capitol. He has security. You know, that's that's not a small security detail either. Okay. So you know the fact that Mark Milley is taking this so seriously that tells you. What they're seeing with the threat intelligence, yeah, um, and we don't see that. You know, we don't see that until well, we might see it if somebody finds it in the bathroom of Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, <laughs> Michael. <laughs> I, you know, I think um, this bird is cooked. We 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 we've been through all of what there is to to say about it. And you know, the irony is here we are. You know, an hour into this podcast and. So much of it has been about Donald Trump, and therefore we sort of fall into the same trap, though our motives are different. And I'm not criticizing us. God knows I don't do self-analysis, but I think that- <laughs> We are above any and all skepticism, okay? And, 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 and above and, all that. And criticism. Jeez. Right, right. But- you know, at, to, to my point about, you know, sort of the perspective you gain in an ICU unit, there really has to be a turning of the page um, for us to get back to, you know, sort of a post-PTSD state of mind, collective state of mind nationally. Because I think that people, yeah. I personally think, as I, you know, sort of wander the halls of the hospital and, and stuff, I think that people just have their lives that they want to live free of you know sort of this discord that we we've spent this hour talking about and this country has been dealing with for for seven years i think people are tired of it that doesn't answer the question well how come he's up 40 points in the polls and the republican uh, party believes he can threaten to kill that. people if he wants <laughs> but 
I do think it's it, we we need to move past it. For you know, for, Brian is going to ask me in a minute where can people find us after this. And as I'll say, then I have this podcast called That Said with Michael Zeldin. But why I say it right this moment, besides you know, sort of just self promotion, is I did an interview with Heather Cox Richardson, which I just posted about the state of our democracy and what we can do to change it. And her point is that democracy is protected best when individuals say, you know, sort of sick and tired, I've had enough, you know, sort of the, the, the movie line and, and begin to walk in a different direction. I, I think we really need to think about walking in a different direction um, in order to put this, are you talking about what I the, think is a nightmare behind us. Are you talking about the line from that work? I'm mad as hell and I'm, I don't want to take this anymore. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. I'm yeah. mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Yeah. That's, so that's, anyway, but, but so I think Heather Cox Richardson is a, is a, is a jewel. And uh, the conversation I had with her was interesting, but more importantly, I think the point is made that if we really want to take back our democracy, it's time to you know put one foot in front of the the next and do something rather than you know sit back and just moan. I, I and I I rarely like moaning except under certain circumstances. But nonetheless, hey now I well, I know John's shaking his head at me. Bringing so, this down to the most base level that's time it, in and time possible. out. That's, so before we get down there, I would like to say uh, the last <laughs> thing we wanted to talk about before we we leave was the passing of uh, Diane Feinstein. Uh, any thoughts, guys, before we head off in the past? I, I look back on her career and um, I, I thought of her as a trailblazer in many ways, but also one of the back in the day when I first started out, she was pretty easy to approach and get comments from mm -hmm. uh, back in the day. And it was uh, always a pleasure as a reporter interacting with her. John? Yeah, I uh, I covered uh, defense and national security for years. And of course, she was a chairman of the Intelligence Committee and uh, I believe ranking member for a while, too. Mm -hmm. And and so I had occasion to talk to her about Syria or Iraq or, or what have you, the the conflict of the day or the threat of the day. And, you know, she was, like you said, always approachable, you know, almost always willing to stop and answer your questions. Um, uh, she she would sometimes question you back, which yeah. I always enjoyed. Uh, she liked the banter. She liked the back and forth. Um, for me, you know, it's not any one, you know, women's rights and 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 a lot of uh, civil rights uh, work that she did and, and championed in the Senate over the years. And even before that, you know, that comes to mind and should be, you know, the at the top of her obituary and was in the ones that have been published. But one thing just stuck out to me, and we talked about this recently, um, you know, with Mitt Romney retiring. Uh, you know, Feinstein was in the Senate a lot longer than Mitt Romney, but but he was a governor and you know, Bob Corker, Jeff Flake, Diane Feinstein, Mitt Romney. These are folks who have their beliefs, conservative, progressive, centrist at times, but willing to say, OK, I believe over here, I believe all this much. But to get a deal, I'm going to get this much and you're going to get about the same of what you want. And let's get this thing done. The artists and let's have a deal. Right. And then let's go vote on it because everybody gets what a little bit of what they want. And then we'll try again with the next piece uh, at some point down the road. Knows how to do that. Understands that, OK, I don't like this CR thing. 
but in in two months, you know, I'll get a spending bill, a bigger spending bill, and I'll like a lot of what's in there. So I'll vote for the CR because federal workers deserve to get paid and military folks deserve to get paid. Federal law enforcement deserves to not get furloughed, right? And ha maybe have to work while they're getting furloughed. So it, it's just another person of, of the age that's fading. And I don't know who the California governor, Gavin Newsom, is going to appoint. And then I don't know who's going to win the election next year to, to fill the seat for the next six years beyond that. But I'm not sure that the folks who are running, the folks who are reported on, on Newsom's, Newsom's shortlist, you know, I'm not sure they're compromisers. I'm not sure they're deal makers. And, and she certainly showed that she, she did have that muscle and it's just atrophying. And we're going to see it with his government shutdown. Michael. Well, so Diane Feinstein really has to be viewed as one of the great trailblazers for women. She, uh, you know, begins her political career in, in 1970 on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. And after um, Mayor Moscone is, is, is killed, um, she becomes the mayor of, of San Francisco, where she, she served for, for a decade before joining the Senate in 90, 1992. So she's 30 years in the Senate, a decade as, as, as mayor um, on the Board of Supervisors from 70 to 78. So since 1970, this um, uh, Diane Feinstein has been a, a leading progressive voice in, in, in politics. And I think she should be remembered uh, for all of the wonderful things she's done in, in her life, especially in respect of the proof that women can do everything at least as well as, as men. Um, and I think that we should be grateful to her for her uh, national service. And with that said, we bring another uh, addition to close and, and I didn't have to debase myself to do it. So, uh, <laughs> so well, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, John, where can we catch you? Oh boy, it's going to be a, going to be a hell of a week. Uh, CQ uh, afternoon briefing, uh, CQ.com subscribe today. And um, maybe I'll make it till Friday and file a column for roll call. <laughs> there you go. And Michael. As I said, the podcast is called That Said with Michael Zeldin on all major podcast apps. I talked a moment ago about the serious conversation I had with Heather Cox Richardson. I have other serious ones upcoming too. But for those of you, to my point, that want to return to normalcy from this PTSD world, the week after my interview is going to be with David Zucker, Jerry Zucker, um, Jim Abram, Abraham. Who wrote, who wrote Airplane, wrote and directed Airplane, and we're going to talk about the making of, of Airplane, which I'm in the middle of re-watching as I prepare myself for that interview. And, and all these many years later, there are some things in there that just stand as you know testament to the, the, the comedic genius of these guys. Surely you must be serious. I am serious. Don't call me Shirley. And <laughs> my, 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 my favorite is Surely you jest. <laughs> no, my favorite is the the uh, the 
protagonist striker the guy with ptsd from yeah. his war years is on the on an airplane he hasn't been on an airplane since the his plane crashed in the war and he's very nervous and the woman sitting next to him says um are you nervous he says very she says first time he says no i've been no, nervous nervous lots of times <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think personally is the is the funniest line in, in, in the entire movie oh there's there's a, there's a lot in that movie, man. We, we could do a whole podcast on that. Just the idea of when the woman starts screaming and there's a whole line to walk up and beat her into submission. There's where, where we, we got to get these people to the hospital. Where, what, what is it? He goes, it's, it's the building where all the sick people go, but that's not important now. Yeah. The physical gags are a little bit, age a little bit less well than the, the slapstick and the, the dialogue yeah. the dialogue well the dialogue is sharp but the slapstick yeah. just takes you back to uh, i mean three stooges and you know uh, and, yeah. and all the other stuff so that i it stay i and, and loving that all of that stays with me but right. in, in in prepping for the interview I, I was listening to them talk in other interviews and one person said could you make this movie today he said oh sure but without the comedy yes <laughs> 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 oh yeah, I had the fish. And anyway, that's, <laughs> uh, that's uh, uh, we could go on. So, uh, John, thanks, and, and Michael, thanks. So, this is just ask the question. I am your host, Brian Karam. The name of the book is called Free the Press. Now, in its third printing, wherever fine books are sold, where we often talk about in that book all the problems with today's press and how to cure all the ills. It's it's a panacea, a cornucopia. And then the uh, uh, column is uh, on salon.com every Thursday and wherever other columns are, are seen or heard on might be there too, as well as on TV. So all that fun stuff aside, thanks for joining us. This is Just Ask the Press on Just Ask the Question, and we will catch you again next week. Thanks.